We want to talk about being trapped in a different sense. Um, maybe you have been trapped in a situation like that or something else. Uh, maybe you've been uh, trapped in an elevator, um, although I'm convinced that only happens in movies, but maybe some of you that's happened to. Uh, you've been locked in a room somehow. Maybe even the, some of the images of, from the news uh, this past few weeks come to mind with hurricanes and people camping on their roofs, uh, waiting for help. Maybe you've been trapped in your words, or you've made a snarky comment about a person and didn't realize that they were in the room, or you exaggerated something and, and somehow, through different circumstances, it came to light that you had stretched the truth. All of us, to some degree, know what it's like to be trapped. And trapped people look for ways out. Right? So when the, mal- the uh, elevator malfunctions, you look for that big red button that you try to keep your kids from pushing all the time. Hurricane victims listen for the, the whir of those helicopter blades. When we're caught in our words, we can blame or dismiss or laugh it off or even face the music. Trapped people look for a way out. And the more serious the circumstances, the more overjoyed we are to find that way out. Last week, uh, we were in Acts 2, and God the Spirit came as He promised to empower these disciples to get the the gospel out. He did it in real dramatic fashion, if you remember, with wind and fire, and, and most importantly, empowering these disciples to speak in the many languages that were represented there on that day in that crowded Jerusalem city. See, the Holy Spirit, we said, indwelled them to get the gospel out of them. And we saw that happen last week. And last week, we had to interrupt Peter's sermon. But there was an obvious question that was kind of lingering from our time together last week, and that's this. What is this good news message that the Spirit is so eager to get out? We know that he wants it out, but what actually is it? Well, this message is incredibly good news, and it also includes, though, that trapped feeling. If you think about the words that Christians use to describe um, salvation, or what it's like to know God in Christ, you'll see what I mean. Words like saved, or rescued, or delivered, or redeemed. Do you see that all of those words has a certain backdrop. Saved from what? Rescued from what danger? Delivered from what slavery? They all assume something. They all assume this backdrop. And the good news is essentially this morning that God has provided a way out. And if you're not a Christian, this is the most revolutionary, life-altering, mind-twisting thing that you will ever come into contact with. That's the power of this message, of this gospel. This is great, great, great news. If you're a Christian here this morning, you don't grow weary of delighting in this news. And so that's your opportunity this morning as we look at what it is. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Let's all stand together and I'll read to us. If you're able to stand, go ahead and do so. I'll read out of the English Standard Version, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Here's what God's Word says. 
This is Peter continuing in his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, quote, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. You can be seated. The good news that the Spirit insists on sharing is Jesus Christ. Who He is, what He's done. And so what I'd like us to do is to look at three aspects of this person, of Jesus Christ. First, that He is divine Messiah and Lord. Second, that He was crucified by men. And last, that He is the way out. So first, Jesus is the divine Messiah and Lord. You'll notice that Peter essentially gives a historical um, survey of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. He's essentially laying it out in logical order. And so we'll follow that. He spends most of his time on the resurrection, as you'll find most of the apostles do in, in the book of Acts or in the initial portion. Um, so we'll just follow that, uh, that history 
The one thing that Peter insists on as he preaches is that God is the one who's behind each aspect of Christ's ministry. So, for example, Jesus led a God-empowered life, we notice in the beginning. It says that his life was full of all kinds of God-confirming things, like these mighty works and these wonders and signs that Jesus did. Those only come from God. And some of the people who are listening there might have seen the very things that he was talking about. He even says, he did, he did those through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Meaning, you were there when this happened. You saw the dead man raised. You, you saw the food be generated from nothing. You saw that. You witnessed that. How do you think that happened? It's because God was empowering his ministry. Now, these things were done right in front of them. And the miraculous ministry of Jesus puts people in kind of an awkward situation. I'll just give you one example from John chapter 9. You can just listen to this. If you want to jot it down, that's great. John chapter 9. But a blind man has been healed, and the, the religious leaders are trying to figure out what's going on. And in this scenario or event, we can see just the tension that Jesus' miracles present. Here's what it says. So for the second time, they, the religious leaders, called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Like, obvious conclusion, right? Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. The blind man has a better read on what's going on than the religious scholars of the day. Because it's obvious Jesus' power is demonstrated through his miracles. He is God-endorsed. And Peter is leveraging that to preach the identity of Christ so that they'll, be, they'll respond to that call. So he had a God-empowered life, but he also has a God-appointed death. Look at verse 23 in Acts chapter 2. It says that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God not only empowered his life, but he led him to an appointed death. What this means is more than just that God was aware that Jesus would die in this way. It means that in God's ultimate sovereignty that the death of Jesus was a premeditated and pre-planned thing. It could not have not happened. When we speak of God's will, we have to be careful and clarify between two senses of God's will. 
God has a fixed will of decree. It's the first sense in which God's will, that term is used, where nothing happens outside of that will. Now, some chafe under that because of things like hurricanes and natural disasters and genocide. And that's a large conversation we can have another time. But let me just say this. It is far better to struggle to occasionally explain why a good God chooses to do what he does than to believe that there is no one at the helm of the universe. The alternative is far, far, far worse. Because we don't have minds to understand God's will of decree, but we know that that exists, that nothing happens outside of it. But then there's also a will of desire we see. He wants certain things. He desires certain things for his children, like sexual purity in the lives of his people. Now, those things are not certain to happen like his will of decree is, right? It's, it's funny when you're talking with people, I just want to know the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God. I love verses like this. Your sanctification, your ongoing transformation by the Spirit. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's just one example of God's will of desire. Now, each of us has failed and succeeded in different ways in stewarding our bodies for God's glory, right? But he has a will of decree and a will of desire. Now, these interplay sometimes in an interesting way and yet in a very helpful way. So, for example, in God's will of desire... Believers or followers of Christ would not marry people who are not Christians. And yet, those who are married to unbelievers also know that their marriage is under his will of decree. Meaning, we're still responsible for the decisions we make and his will of desire. And we know that we're going to continue to sin and we'll still be experience consequences from those. Those are kind of built in as God's loving discipline. But we also know that God is going to extract good even out of our poor decisions. And that's the glory of God's will, that we have the assurance that he steers things the way that he desires. And yet, he doesn't run over that sense of responsibility that we still have. Both of those things are intact. Now, why are we talking about these two senses of God's will? Because look at verse 23. It says, He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see how both of those senses of will are going on? God decreed that Jesus Christ would be crucified for the sins of his people. And yet it's still wrong to murder innocent people. So the agency and the avenue through which God's will of decree went is through these rebellious Jews and Romans who crucified our Lord. Luke 22, verse 22, has both elements in one verse when Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. See how both of those things are present? The will of decree, the will of desire. I was in a, a coffee shop the other day, and a, a man struck up a conversation with me. He saw me reading my Bible there at the table and assumed I was a pastor and I wish that were not the case, right? I wish that, well, you're just a follower of Jesus, but he happened to be right, right? I was a pastor, and so we start talking about faith, and um, he's asking me different questions, and he's talking about the crucifixion like Jesus was a victim. Oh, it's just, I can't believe, and it's so wrong. And so 
I asked him, I said, well, do you know ultimately why Jesus died? And he said, well, not really. And I said, God chose to do that. In an ultimate sense, God chose to crucify his son. See, both of those layers are working at the same time. And Peter is saying there was a, there's a backdrop behind the death of Jesus. It, he wasn't just a victim. God was doing something through the crucified Messiah. The third thing he talks about is this God-accomplished resurrection. In verse 24, God raised him up. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up. He's going out of his way to say, hey, God's doing this. The resurrection is one of the primary focuses in the preaching of Acts. And it is here from 24 all the way through 32. And this is big unexpected news because they thought the resurrection was going to be an all at once at the end kind of a thing. And so now they're announcing, well, there's this unique situation. (laughs) And Jesus was resurrected. It says he was loosing the pangs of death in verse 24. Pangs are things that are kind of inevitable pain. That's what it typically refers to, like birth pangs, right? You women who've given birth, it's just kind of three in the morning, right? You can't say, well, hits news, all right, on delivering a baby. It just, it's that inevitable thing. And the pang of death is oftentimes like that, right? Lena and Al didn't get a chance to choose when that was going to happen. And yet it says when death tried to cling to Jesus, that it couldn't. He was slippery. It didn't work this time for some reason. It says it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Because death is a consequence for something that Jesus didn't do. Death was not normal, if you remember, in God's good world. And it invaded with the entrance of sin, but Jesus was not held by death. And now Peter uses a couple passages in the Old Testament to kind of explain more about this. He uses the Davidic covenant, the covenant that we heard about earlier, that God made to have a perpetual king on David's throne. And he quotes Psalm 16, and it really seems like he does so for verse 27, if you look at that. We know that because it comes up later in verse 31. Peter refers to that phrase again, that verse, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, Peter is careful to say, well, you know, if Psalm 16 was about David, that wouldn't really make a lot of sense because, well, that's not true in in David's terms, right? We know where he's buried. He did see corruption in that sense of, of death. So who could this be about? See, the weird thing about the Davidic covenant is just within a a short time, David's family was not ruling from the throne. And so people have scratched their heads and thought, well, what about God's promise to him? Way back in 2 Samuel, what happened to that? And how could a descendant of David uh, rule and live forever? And how how would that work? And Peter's answer is, Jesus That's the answer to all these questions about the Davidic covenant. In his resurrection and ascension, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant comes. See, death couldn't keep Christ in the same way that Psalm 16 describes. And so his resurrection is even God accomplished. The last thing is this exaltation. 
where in verse 33 it says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. This is the position of total and absolute power. A convicted, crucified criminal from that station all the way to the most powerful being in the, in the universe where he's ruling. It's this impressive flip-flop that Peter even uses Psalm 110 verse 1 there in verse 34, which Jesus used a lot in the Gospels to kind of stump the Pharisees. As David is speaking, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And you think, wait, David's a king. What are you talking about, my Lord? Like, he's the Lord. He's the one who's in charge of Israel. He's the one who's... Who is David referring to? Who is this in-between person? And Peter says, it's Jesus. When the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures and the Old Testament Scriptures, they point to Christ. They're about Him. They're fulfilled in Him. He is the climax. He is the point. And Peter is saying, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, and they'll keep rattling off these Old Testament scriptures all throughout the book of Acts, saying, it's about Christ. Christ has done it. He is the one who's exalted. He is David's Lord. He's ascended to the Father's right hand. It's the, notice, it's the, the Father who exalts him and gives him the promise of the Holy Spirit that he might give the Spirit then to us. That is a position of authority and power. So just to recap, we, we see that it's God who empowers the miracles. It's God who appoints his death. It's God who raises him up. It's God who exalts the Son. So God has authenticated and validated the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah. The divine Messiah and Lord. Now, you might be wondering, well, where is this trap that you were talking about earlier? I mean, this is a great description of Jesus, it's glorious, it's, it's wonderful to think about what he's like, but how does this affect me or, or intersect with human beings? And here's the answer to that question. You and I participated in the crucifixion of the divine Messiah and Lord. Like the song said, it was our sin that held him there. See that little phrase in verse 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You'll notice that everything before it in 22 and 23 are adjectives describing who Jesus is. So, Jesus, uh, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs and God did through him. All of that is describing the person of Jesus, but it's not the substance of the sentence. If you just took out all the adjectives, of verse 22 and 23, it would say, Jesus of Nazareth, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's the point. And that's why all those adjectives are in there. Because he's building up and saying, how glorious and great and majestic is this divine Messiah and Lord. And by the way, we killed him. So that those words crash in at the end saying, we did what? We killed the Messiah? We killed Christ? That's the purpose of why the, the translation and even the Greek is set up that way, to just land with, with a thud. And the apostles insist on this. This is not the only place that they say, you killed him. 3, verses 13 through 15. Chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 30. Chapter 7, verse 52. Again and again and again. You crucified the author of life, they say. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, that's, that's true then, right? Because they were in that mix. Maybe they were co-conspirators. Maybe they were part of that crowd who were shouting, crucify him. I mean, they were there, so it makes sense that Peter would say that they participated in the killing of the divine Messiah and Lord, but, but that doesn't really have to do with us. We didn't live then, and we weren't a part of that. You say, I participated in the crucifixion of the Messiah. How so? Do you remember verse 23? What is the ultimate reason that the Son of God was sent to the cross to die? The definite purpose and plan of God. Why would God crucify His own Son? The Scriptures answer this question. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God had determined in his grace to send and crucify and raise and exalt his son because our sin demanded payment. You and I are the ultimate reason why that son was sent. That was the demand, the the demand of justice. And our sin makes us co-conspirators against the divine Messiah and Lord. And that, my friends, is a trap. Do you see the tension that that puts us in? It's similar to when Matthew 27, when Pilate, the Roman governor at the time... He gets stuck dealing with this trial of this Jesus of Nazareth. He tries to distance himself from the whole thing and and from killing this innocent man, but he's got these constituents who he needs to appease to, and he's in this awful place. And so he literally gets a basin of water and washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. Of course, it's not that simple. But do you know what the crowd said in Matthew 27? His blood be on us and on our children. I think this is one of the most compelling verses in all of the Bible. Because what they're saying is, we will assume responsibility for this man's murder. This is how Peter dramatically concludes his sermon in verse 36. He sums it all up. Notice what he says. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's, if they had a sermon handout, that would be the point at the top, right? That's what he's getting to. That's the dilemma. That by birth, the trajectory of our lives are to be judged as God's enemy. That our destiny apart from Christ is to be his footstool. Think about that. I wonder what it was like there that day. There must have been silence. This is the message that the Spirit inspired to preach through the Apostle Peter. If you're not a Christian here this morning, do you feel this tension? Can you recall times when your conscience, for some reason, even though no one noticed and no one knows that it's troubled by your choices or by your thoughts, 
There are things that no one knows, no one saw, that we still feel guilty about. And we have a sense that those wrongs matter to someone, don't we? Why is that? If what Peter says is true here, you can see why it matters. Because even unnoticed sins demand payment. And those sins that we only know about led Christ to a cross. And that's why they matter. And if Jesus is risen and is in this position of total power and authority, then those sins matter and they are known. See, all of our lives essentially speak to what we think of Jesus Christ. Did he die? Did he rise? Is he exalted in a position of power or not? And my life either comes underneath those statements and supports them or it wars against them. Christianity is a response to who you believe Jesus to be. And if you're not a Christian, I admit it's disturbing to kind of find out that your life has been about another person the whole time. You've kind of thought that you just were going to extract as much joy out of this life that you could and And your life is about your goals and your things. And now you're hearing that's not true. You were born into a world with a landlord. And that changes the way that we live and think and operate. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe you're asking the question that the crowd asked in verse 37. What shall we do? I'm trapped. I'm stuck. He's already risen. He's already exalted. I can't apologize. I can't go back. I can't write that. And there's so much sin that I've done. How could I possibly do anything with all of that sin at this point? What do we do with this blood on our hands? Is it too late? This is why the message of Christianity is described as good news. That tension, that feeling of being trapped is precisely the environment in which Peter comes along and says, there's a way out. Jesus is the divine Messiah and Lord. You did crucify him, but he is also your way out at the same time. So in answer to their question, Peter said to them in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. He tells them to do two things that are really one response. He tells them to to change their mind, to repent. That's what the word means. To acknowledge your stubborn independence from God. He says, for the first time in your life, think accurately and objectively about your status with God, based on what God says of you and to you. Now, this change of mind is not only difficult, it's impossible for you to do on your own. Because it requires a humility. It's devastating to your pride. And the Holy Spirit has to be the one to facilitate that. But you can't have faith and keep up a facade at the same time. That's not how Christianity works. So you must admit who you are in your sin and acknowledge that before God. Repentance is not a laundry list of things that you've done wrong. Now, you might mention things when you repent that you've done wrong. But it's not just hammering through the list. This initial repentance before God is admitting that not only have you sinned, but that you are a sinner. 
that the foundation is cracked. The machine is broken. You're admitting to more than just making a few mistakes some of the time like everyone else does. That's not what genuine initial repentance is. It's waving a white flag. That's what repentance is. So it's not a laundry list of things you've done wrong. It's not promising to do better. Lord, I promise to give more and I promise to serve more and I promise I'll be a better mom or a better daughter or whatever it is. God is after the white flag. He's not after the promise to do better. And in fact, promising to do better is the opposite of repentance. Because what does promising to do better assume? That you can. (laughs) And that's the problem, right? You can't do any better. And so it flies in the face of God's mercy to say, God, I'll pay you back. No, you won't. No, you won't. God is not like others where promising him favors will get you closer to him. It actually creates distance between you. That's what Peter is calling for, a change of mind, waving of the white flag, true repentance, admitting you're broken. But second, he says, to also identify with Jesus Christ. That's what baptism essentially is, right? Repenting is not enough because it doesn't make us right with God. It just acknowledges what we've done wrong, like a criminal uh, in a court saying, yeah, I fess up and I did it. Well, that doesn't make that criminal right or not deserving of punishment or an upstanding citizen. That just means they've confessed. And so if the first step is acknowledging who we are, then the natural second step is to look outside of yourself for help from the outside. And that's what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are. Because when we trust in what God has done through Christ, it actually attaches us to Him. It gives us His right standing before God. And it takes our condemned standing and attaches it to Him. We become united with Christ. And that's the unbelievable news of the gospel. That the premeditated plan of God to send, kill, raise, and exalt the Son actually results in the possibility of our rescue. Our participation in the crucifixion actually in God's providence and His sovereignty is how we're also redeemed through that cross. So the life of Christ can be credited to us by faith. His death can pay the payment for our sin. His resurrection can can transfer the power and hope to transform us. And so Peter directs the crowd to these two things. Repent of your sin and identify yourself with Jesus Christ. Be united to Him. And you see how those two things are related, right? It's like being out in the ocean in a raft that has a hole in it. And you're slowly taken on water. And imagine that a boat that was functional pulled up alongside you and offered help and said, you can come here. The decision to ditch the old raft and the decision to jump in the new one are related, right? They're not separate things. But you see how they work together, and repentance and belief are like that. They go together in responding to God and His gospel. So look at what happens when people do this, when they repent and identify with Jesus. Two things result. Your sins are forgiven, and you receive the Spirit. The penalty of your sins is paid past, present, and future. You'll still experience consequences of sin as the Lord's loving discipline but you will not receive his wrath. 
you will not be backhanded by the Lord. That's not how that works now. Because you go from footstool to adopted child. And the way that he deals with you is gentle and caring and loving. And a part of that is forgiving your sin because of what Christ has done. But then he also moves in you to to effect change and to bring about uh, his grace in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is described as a down payment to ensure that this salvation project reaches the end, which he always does. Amazing gospel that we believe. And you think, well, who is this offer for? I mean, this has to be like one of those TV commercials, right? Like a limited time, you got 10 days to respond to this, or the prices are going to go up, or that kind of thing. You think it's like that, but then verse 39 says, For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter wants to explain who this good news can be offered to. Some people try to make this verse into... um, create a kind of a covenantal structure to do some things where children are kind of in a unique position of blessing or recipients or there's kind of categories of things and that's not what Peter's after. Peter is saying it's, it's for you, it's for your kids, it's for, for those who are far off, basically for anyone. But that doesn't mean it's a blanket gospel that just kind of just washes over the whole earth, right? Because there is a condition that follows when it says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So that call goes out as far and as broad as, it, as it's going to be across the globe, but then only those who respond and who are called by God are those who find this promise. He says it again in verse 41, so those who received his word, right, is who he describes this group who's been renewed. So it's for everyone, but it's only effective for those who are called, who respond. And 3,000 people do that. Can you imagine? All right, first service. Here we go. Spirit comes. They start preaching. 3,000. Can you imagine what the next week was like for these apostles? 3,000 people. Thousands of years of Jewish tradition. Amazing. This is, look, here's the point of this, okay? This is revolutionary news. That's the point. This is revolutionary news. This is unbelievable what we've just described. That God has protected us from himself in the gospel. While we were trapped in our unbelief and rebellion, God sends the Son and the Spirit. And he sends the Spirit to persuade us about what the Son has done. That's how badly he wants us to understand. Could we have any more security than we have in the gospel? The blood of the Son, the work of the Spirit... There is no typical gospel. There is no ordinary good news. This is revolutionary stuff. And notice that God is the one who accomplishes this. What we add in this text is that we killed the divine Messiah and Lord. That's our part. That's what we add. And he takes Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and his exaltation. And he adds all that up to a dramatic rescue for his people. This is revolutionary news. Some implications and we'll be done. For those of you who are still searching, what does it matter that this is revolutionary news? I hope this morning you're sensing that this message is maybe bigger than you initially thought. That maybe God is calling you to himself 
You think, well, how would I know if God's calling me to himself? Do you see the beauty and glory of Jesus? Can you see how all of this adds up to rescue for his people? Do you see worth in him? Do you see glory in him? If you see those things, then God is in the process of calling you to himself. It's easy to get sidetracked when you're investigating things of the faith, right? Because politicians name Jesus, and there's churches that are bogus who are just all about themselves and not about what the Lord is doing. There's all kinds of sideline conversations and distractions that could hang you up from getting to the, to the crux of this. Acts 2 is the crux of this. Peter's sermon is the crux of this. Who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, that's what you have to wrestle with first. So I'd encourage you just to stay focused on the main thing. And if you want to dismiss Christianity, you have to dismiss it based on the main thing, not on the sideline things. This is a great sermon to look at to understand what the essence of our faith is. But if you're starting to, be, to understand this and to, to, to long for a relationship with Christ and you sense that God is at work in you, then you need to repent and believe, like today, right? I mean, if, if, that's, if you're feeling that, and I know that we're, we're, not, we're not altar call kind of people, right? We believe the gathered congregation is for those who are in Christ primarily, but we acknowledge there's people here who don't know Christ. And if that's you this morning and you want to respond to this, Today's the day, and you can do that. There's no caveats, there's no conditions, there's no fine print. Like what you read in Acts 2 is the deal. So if you want to do that, you talk to the person who invited you. Come see us after during the closing song or after service or whatever. Please, don't leave trapped. Respond. For those of you who are Christ followers this morning, it's easy to get used to the gospel. It's easy to think, oh, this is predictable. This is where the pastor talks about the death and resurrection, and you just kind of, boop, tune out, and you've heard it before, and it's a known entity. And this morning, I just hope you remember the glory of this good news. That's my goal. I'd like to encourage you to go back and just spend some time reflecting on the gospel itself. Remember. Just remember, Paul's letters were full of this. You know, why Why would he write to Christians, well, here's what the gospel is. Why would he do that unless it was instructive for them? 1 Corinthians 1, for consider your calling, brothers. Galatians 4, formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Colossians 1, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 1 Timothy 1, Paul, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Titus 3, for we ourselves were once fools. Why? Why do they talk about everything that they were? Why is it so important for us to remember these gospel truths? Because these gospel truths are the trunk of the tree, friends. That's why. And from that trunk grows all the branches and all the, the maybe half dozen that start and then the hundreds of branches that crop off that and then the fruit that's born from that. This is the trunk. This is the whole thing. I mean, think about practical struggles that you face. I'm struggling forgiving someone. What does the scripture tell you to do? Remember that you've been forgiven. I'm struggling to love this person. I, I just I can't figure out a way to have my heart happy about sacrificing for them. Walk in love as Christ loved us. You're struggling to serve. I'm sick of this. I'm tired of this. Someone else should do this. 
How, where would we find motivation for that in that time? Serve as Christ served. He's washing our feet before he goes to the cross. You're struggling and suffering. Arm yourselves with this way of thinking, like Christ did, and with suffering. You're struggling to be generous. Remember Christ who became poor on your behalf. You see, this is the trunk. This is the whole thing. There's no like secret pastoral thing here, right? Or the, the, the apostles had some code that they cracked and like, well, here's what you should do. You just go back to the gospel over and over and over again. Different ways, different angles, different aspects, but this is the trunk. This is our continual reference point. So remember these truths. Maybe spend some time reflecting on the different stages, Jesus' life. When you read the miraculous accounts in the Gospels, this is the Father endorsing the authority of the Son. Maybe with his death, maybe you need to consider how your sin was involved in his crucifixion. Maybe you need to pray through the reality of your forgiveness. In his resurrection, Lena and Al just experienced Christ's victory over death. They just did. And we will too. That's our hope. That's what we have to hold on to. Maybe it's his exaltation. Maybe you've forgotten that right now Jesus Christ is reigning, like currently. That's his current state. You might picture like a little baby born in a manger. You might picture the sheep around. He is exalted and reigning now. Maybe that's instructive for your life. So maybe it's just pondering each one of those stages in his life. But remember, reflect on the gospel again. Let it refresh you and correct you and encourage you and do all the things that God meant for it to do. In closing, I want to bring us back to what that crowd said to Pilate. His blood be on us and on our children. Do you remember that? While we were ready to own the guilt of the murder of the Son of God, God used that blood and ministry of that Son to comprehensively free us from the condemnation that we asked for. That's moving. And may we never, ever, ever lose the wonder of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... We humble ourselves before you. God, a proud Christian is an oxymoron. It is. This is a gospel that constantly shapes and chastens and, and works in us and through us to be, to be not only holy and pure, but to be useful and ministry to others. It has so many purposes that you intend for this message to, to bear out. It, it is the trunk. God, I pray that we would be gospel people, that we would be shaped by it, and, and just the, the flavor of the culture in our church would be gospel-centered. We confess that we are not in perfect alignment with the gospel in the way that we live and think. And Peter was was not in alignment with the gospel when he showed preference for Jews over Gentiles. And there are daily things that we face that are not in alignment with the truths of the gospel. Oh God, realign us. Correct us. Shape us. Father, I pray that we would not only know you by your grace, but that we would 
consider it amazing grace. Amazing grace. We're going to sing that in a minute. Oh, God, help us to, to sense and to, to truly sing. This is amazing. This is revolutionary stuff that you've done. So help us to acknowledge that together and for our community to be patterned after the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.